Welcome back to the Extension Experience Podcast. I'm Dana Zook. This week, I have Dr. Dwayne Elmore back on the podcast. He's a professor, wildlife extension specialist, and Bullenbach Chair in Wildlife Biology at Oklahoma State University in the in-room department, as we say, in yeah. Extension. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Elmore. Thanks for having me. Since I've had you on the, I've introduced you on the podcast before, uh, tell us a little bit about one of your personal wildlife hobbies or kind of like in the natural sphere. Oh, well, I, I kind of threw this on you no, <laughs> real quick. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm partial to birds. So yes. I like, I like to bird hunt. Okay. Um, we, we have German short hairs. And okay. so I spend a lot of time chasing things that they like to point. And so that's a, that's a passion of mine. And, uh, my wife and I both like birds in general. So, mm-hmm. um, just bird watching at certain times okay. of the year, but most of my bird watching is behind a bird dog. Okay. A shotgun. That's so cool. Yeah. So so do you train dogs or do you do, you do kind of that? Our own. Your yeah. own dogs. Yeah. Yes, yes. That, that, I don't, yeah, that's a full-time job. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, but I think yeah. that that is an interesting hobby. I grew up in Nebraska, as you know, mm-hmm. and we had a lot of pheasant hunters when I was younger, you know, yeah. in the Milo fields and that sort of thing. And I was always fascinated by the, the dog kind of portion of that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and how they're they, special yeah it's kind of a cool thing they were all labs yeah but uh it, it was still pretty neat yeah, labs are great for pheasant and waterfowl good they dogs. just remain a puppy for like mm-hmm. five years yeah yeah much. maybe <laughs> um but yeah that was that was a cool um part of that so good to know good to know we always like to get to know our um, speakers a little bit better so dr elmore's focus revolves around all things wildlife and because he is wildlife extension he also gets questions about wildlife in areas that they're not welcome right all right so today we're going to focus on nuisance wildlife mm-hmm. is that a good term yeah, yeah. Let's just dive right in. We're going to do kind of like a fast, rapid fire list of some of these nuisance wildlife. And you're going to kind of, I'll lead you into it, Dwayne, but I'm going to let you go and talk about a little bit some of these questions you've gotten. Uh, So let's start, uh, let's start with deer, you know, because a lot of ag producers have some nuisance type issues with Mm -hmm. deer, but also, also small landowners and, and people in town. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, the deer are widely distributed in Oklahoma. They occur in lots of different types of vegetation mm-hmm. from prairies to forests and everything in between urban areas. Mm-hmm. And they're the most popular hunted animal in Oklahoma. Uh, big revenue generator. Right. But they cause damage. And, uh-huh. I, and I get it. I mean, I've, you know, I've dealt with it personally. They get in your lawn and they eat your prized shrubs or they camp out on your wheat field all winter. Mm-hmm. So there's, uh, depending on the situation, you know, urban versus rural, there's different considerations if we're talking about in a in an ag landscape if they're hit, hitting crop fields we actually produced a fact sheet about that okay um, yes a couple of years ago that i think would be a good reference for for folks okay and you know and in that fact sheet we talk a lot about crop selection like that's not always an option but sometimes it's consideration if you've got a place that or you have a high deer density and you're constantly having a lot of deer damage you're going to struggle if you have soybeans you just are because that is so attractive to deer, and so that that's a consideration. Is is there another crop that can be grown there where I'm going to have less damage, like cotton, per se, mm-hmm. uh, for example? But that's not always a, an option for somebody. You know, um, markets drive that, right? And, and the and the location drives that. It's mm-hmm. not just about the damage issues. So, you know, there are there are things that can be done to lessen the damage. Uh, but the first thing I would uh, encourage a producer to do is to really try to measure and see how much it is because sometimes the perceived damage 
is is not what they're actually you know what's actually happening on the landscape. What it looks like. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, if you see deer out there all the time, you're going to assume that they're really impacting um, bean production, mm-hmm. for example. And they may or may not be, and they may be on the first few rows, but maybe in the interior of the field, not so much. So we can do things like put up exclusion cages mm-hmm. to measure exactly how much deer impact is happening and uh you know sometimes modifying the vegetation around the fields can make it less attractive to the animals going into the field Um, so there are some things that can be done Um, you know often people want to reduce the deer numbers and that can be like chasing your tail around because you're constantly constantly fighting a battle you know you're Mm -hmm. getting immigration from the surrounding landscape and i think for the most part that really frustrates landowners that Mm -hmm. they're just they're not able to reduce density low enough to have an effect. So I would just encourage them to take kind of a holistic approach and really look through that fact sheet and get some ideas about how to measure how much damage there actually is, and then some practical things that they can do to to try to, to minimize it. But crop selection is certainly one if, if it's an option for that producer. So the, is that fact sheet managing deer damage to crop fields in Oklahoma? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so we that that's a new fact sheet, like it you is, said. Okay, new. all right. So that's a really good resource. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even think about soybeans, but soybeans are kind of a rare, more rare, not rare. Let's not say rare. Let's say um, less common crop in Oklahoma. And I would assume that if deer saw that there, they'd be. Well, in fact, you know, when we tell when people ask about what to plant in terms of a summer food mm-hmm. plot, we always say if you can grow soybeans, there's nothing that deer like better. Okay. So that should tell you something. About yeah. If you're growing soybeans for crop production, uh-huh. you're going to have deer issues. It's going to attract them. Yeah. Um, other things, you know, corn, not so much. Okay. Um, so, you know, they're not eating corn except maybe when it's first germinating and then, you know, at, at the ripe stage, they, yeah. might, they might hit it. But most of a corn's growth period, deer will leave it alone. Okay. So that's, that's a major difference between those two crops that are often grown in conjunction with each other. Okay. Interesting. So what about the, you know, there's a good resource as far as from a master gardener standpoint. So mm-hmm. from a, uh, yeah, an urban part. So I, I've seen where they've rubbed the bark off trees. Yeah. So urban is an, I think generally an easier fix uh-huh. because, you know, in a crop situation, like we're saying markets are largely driving what people right. are planting and there's limited flexibility that a producer might have. But in your landscape, you can pick and choose what plants you have. And there are lots of plants that deer don't eat. So uh, there's an, another fact sheet on um, reducing deer damage to, in horticulture situations. Yes. And that has a list of plants that are seldom um, eaten by deer and or rabbits. And that would be a great list for landowners to, to, to look at if they're having deer damage issues. Because if, you know, there's certain plants like, um, you know, black-eyed Susan, for example, I can't grow them in my yard. Deer and rabbits will not leave them alone. Okay. So unless you're going to plant like an acre of black-eyed Susan, <laughs> you're not going to get them past the deer in some right. in some areas. But, you know, if you lived in a densely urban downtown Oklahoma City, you... No issues. Yeah, you're not going to have any... You can grow really? black-eyed Susan all day long. But so it, location yeah. matters. So, But if you're having deer issues, look at that list and try to start with the ones that are seldom, if ever, eaten by deer Mm -hmm. and and then i would say leave the uh repellents alone you know people want to spray stuff on their plants generally they're not very effective 
And if they are effective, it's very short-lived. Uh, the sun and rain degrades the repellent, so you have to reapply them a lot, Yeah, right? maybe multiple times a week. Um, and about the only re repellent that we even recommend is one that's uh, putrefied egg solids. Oh, okay. It's as nasty as it sounds. Oh, gross. So <laughs> nobody wants to be in a landscape with putrefied egg oh, sprayed over everything. And, right. And that's one of the few things that actually seems to reduce deer damage. So it smells like so, something dead. Yeah. yeah so basically. Repellents is just not a real practical solution okay. for in most situations. Well, I've been doing some planning for for my landscape and um, where I shop, uh, a couple of the places, they do have a lot of, um, on the description of the plant, mm -hmm. they say, um, you know, avoided by deer yeah. and that sort of thing. So if you if you really feel like you have a lot of those issues, you might look into something like that. Yeah. And you can put up cages around plants. Too. Yeah. Like if you have if, if you're just like, I've got to have hostas, I'm okay. going to grow hostas because <laughs> I love them, but the deer won't leave them alone. Right. Well, you might put up a cage around them. Okay. You know, that could be a compromise. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. So what about this, uh, these dreaded moles and gophers, if we're talking about yeah. landscape? Yeah. And mostly we get complaints about them from, from urban, but sometimes, uh, um, you know, hay fields will hear okay. go go large gopher uh -huh. infestations. So they're different animals is first thing to know that uh, even though they both burrow, a mole is primarily insectivore or, you know, or they're eating small animals. So they're mm -hmm. eating earthworms and grubs. A gopher is a herbivore. So they're primarily eating the rhizomes and the root plant material. Okay. So from a, in an ag situation, a mole is really not a concern. All right. Uh, gophers can be, you know, they can, they can eat enough of root biomass that they might affect Bermuda production. Okay. Um, but, Generally, there's not nearly as many gophers in in a on a property as people think. They they create a lot of uh, per, um, mounds that mm -hmm. you know are visible, so it it can look worse than it actually is. Whereas you know in a in an urban landscape, the moles is mostly also an aesthetic issue. So mm -hmm. people don't like to see the the tunnels, right. and they might step in them, or uh -huh. if they have a big heavy rain event, you get some erosion. Whereas the gopher again can actually be the one that might cause damage that prized hosta we mentioned earlier right the gophers love the roots of hostas so okay. if you see your hosta just wilt overnight it's probably a gopher take note yeah. take note so generally we give moles quite a bit of latitude because they're not that damaging it's mostly aesthetics okay whereas gophers can be damaging to plants um but what i recommend in a um, small scale, like if it's in somebody's lawn, it's just trying to trap them. Okay. If, you know, if the problem is bad enough that you feel like you need to do something, mm -hmm. traps work pretty well. Now, that's not an option for a pasture. You know, if you're talking about 20, right. 20 acres of Bermuda. Yeah. And there are some toxicants that are that are possible for, for gophers. And that's, you know, that's something that um, uh, wildlife services might be able to provide some technical right. guidance because that's a very technical question about how to apply yeah. those at a big scale and i will say that often it's not worth it okay like the cost of doing the toxicant application you're not going to recoup that in many situations in increased forage okay. so that's something to really mull over before you go to the expense of doing it but in the home landscape you do, it's all about your risk or your tolerance mm -hmm. to that animal how, how how bad is the aesthetic look of the mole or the gopher that you're willing to go to the the effort of trapping, but I, I do recommend trapping in the home landscape versus the toxicants. 
that is very helpful because I've always heard, you know, control the bugs and you'll control the moles and gophers. But you just told me that gophers don't even go after bugs. Yeah. Uh, so so, so it, that's, you know. That the, would be a mole issue if you, but, you know, a lot of their food would be earthworms. Which right. Some of those toxins aren't even yes, touching. Yes, so. absolutely. And and do you want to control your, I mean, you want to get rid of your earthworms? I mean, that's yeah. the thing. Like, just because you have a few moles or, I mean, gophers can be a problem, but. I think that's something to really consider. Like, do you want to damage the entire ecosystem of your because lawn, you have your pasture? One, one or two moles, right? You know, that may be transient. I mean, sometimes they come and go. Like, I have them in my lawn, maybe a cumulative total of a month a year. Yeah, it uh, seems like it is you know, kind of like go, that. And I just, I just put up with it. You right. Know? I just if they sometimes they'll get into a flower bed and they might push some annuals up. That's about the extent of mm -hmm. the damage. Everything else is superficial, it's aesthetics, but yeah. it's not really worth for me. And you know, everybody's got a risk a tolerance, right? Level, but for me, it's not worth going to the effort of trying to trap that animal. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the armadillo. Mm -hmm. the 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 animal I I think is so funny. Yeah. And I'd never come in contact with that until I moved down here. And yeah, they're they're fascinating animals. Uh, they moved into Oklahoma of their own accord. Okay. They they crossed the Red River out of Mexico many decades ago. Okay. And have been marching forward to the north, <laughs> probably at about their limit. Okay. Uh, they get knocked back even in northern Oklahoma in really cold winters. They get knocked back pretty hard. Okay. Uh, they're they're not they don't tolerate cold weather. So uh, they've moved about as far north as they can. Um, and they can cause a lot of damage, particularly in the summer. I start, I usually start getting phone calls about armadillos in June or July. Okay. And the reason is, uh, you know, they're, they're mostly, they're foraging a lot on grubs and, um, um, things in the shallow part of the soil column. Mm -hmm. They're digging them up. And, you know, most of the year, those foods are available all through the forest and the prairies. Mm -hmm. So they're just kind of broadly distributed. But in the summer, when the ground starts getting hard, because it hasn't rained in yes. four weeks or six weeks, and they can't dig very well, they start really getting attracted to our irrigated lawns, mm -hmm. which where the insects are close to the surface of the soil, and the soil is uh, very loose because mm -hmm. it's irrigated. So um, that's usually when we start having damage issues. They're fairly easy to trap, and you don't have to um, bait the trap. You just funnel them in. Okay. And we've got a fact sheet on trap, Yes, I saw that. Yep. And uh, that works, uh, they, but they can be really frustrating because they, you know, they'll hit you for two or three nights and then they might, you might have a week reprieve and then they'll come back. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, in a, in a Bermuda lawn, it's largely aesthetics again, because the Bermuda will fill those yes. gaps in. Thank goodness. Yeah, right. That's rhizomous. one good thing about it. Yep. But fescue is a little big, bigger issue because, you know, when they dig those fescue plants up, you kind of got gaps that you have right. to seed. Um, I have that in my lawn, so and I struggle with armadillos. Mm -hmm. um, I usually, I kind of, I kind of give them a three night rule because like, <laughs> they don't, a lot of times they'll hit the lawn and move on. But okay. if I get hit three nights in a row, I'll start thinking about trapping because okay. that animal may have become kind of habituated. And I'm, I'm yeah. Like, he's trying to make a home. Repeat. Offender. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, what I'll do is I'll, I'll actually, if I'm going to try to trap, I'll irrigate the lawn only where I want to trap okay. the armadillo. And okay. That, that, they do seem to be attracted to that freshly irrigated lawn. Okay. Um, uh, I'm, I'm assuming they can smell it. Yeah. But they, um, you know, I've had good luck doing that, like irrigating a certain portion of the lawn, putting my trap there with the funnels going out. Okay. And I can usually get them within a couple nights. Okay. If, if I do that. 
but you trap them and then then it's like oh gosh i've got this armadillo yeah what do i do with that so they they're they're not protected in oklahoma so you can kill them year round okay of course a lot of people are dealing with this in a city right where you yeah that's what i mean discharge a firearm probably, yeah so if that's the case you know it's best once you have it trapped call a nuisance wildlife control operator mm-hmm. to to take it off your hands for you um what's not legal is to take it out in the country and release it on somebody's property. Right. It's illegal to release wildlife on somebody's property without permission. So transporting them and releasing them is mm-hmm. not is not legal. So, you know, either if you're in a place where you can legally uh, kill it yourself, mm-hmm. you can do that. If not, call a nuisance wildlife control operator and you can find their names by county on the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation's website. Okay. All right. So have a plan. It's kind of yeah. like when I yeah. tell people... When you buy chickens, before you buy chickens, have a plan. What are you right. going to do with your either dead chickens or, you yeah. know, have a plan before you decide to make your little trap and trap yep. the armadillo. Okay. And don't handle them. Um, right. I just hands. wanted to say that. Yeah. They are the only other mammal that we know of that can carry leprosy. Now, not all of them have it, but there's no need to right. risk it. Just don't touch them with bare hands. Right. Yeah. So briefly, squirrels and bird feeders, that's always, I mean, that's the one thing that I deal with. Of course, I don't have a bird feeder right now, but they're always getting into the bird feeders. Yeah. So cones or some type of exclusion on the, on the pole, um, is, is a good strategy to keep the squirrel from being able to climb up the pole. The cone has to be high enough off the ground though that the squirrel can't jump. Okay. They can easily jump three and a half, four feet. They jump a long ways. Yeah. You need to have feeders that are pretty elevated Mm -hmm. off the ground, you know, probably five, six foot, right. with a cone right up against the feeder. And then the feeder needs to be far enough away from a tree or, or any other object that the squirrel can't leap jump. across. Okay. And they can, you know, they can jump a long way. So you have to be pretty uh, clever to, to keep a squirrel from getting on um, feeders. But you can generally, if you put the pole up, or the feeder up high enough on a pole and use exclusion and keep it away from trees. Right. 90, 95% of the damage will go away. Okay. You get any calls about squirrels? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) You guys can't see Dwayne's face, but he's like, oh, my gosh, all these these squirrel calls. Oh, my goodness. Bird bird people do not like squirrels. Most people do not like them eating all their sunflowers. I mean, that's expensive to put out. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Um, This is a funny story, but when I was growing up, my grandpa, he would feed the squirrels. Mm-hmm. in our both in omaha and in rural nebraska and he got a bird feeder one time or a squirrel feeder squirrel feeder mm-hmm. why do you need a squirrel feeder i don't know but it, it had a big jar and you had a place where you could stick the corn cob on it well i just thought it would be hilarious if you put the lid on the jar and then transport if the squirrel got in there i just thought as a kid that would be hilarious we never tried it but yeah yeah, we didn't try it i don't think that i could have gotten up there without doing it that would have been just a terrible squirrel feeder i don't know but anyway they were they were determined for sure there are some folks that like to watch the squirrels but yeah that's what my both my grandpas did like that i know okay snakes everybody's dreaded scary thing but i don't dread them per se well they're really beneficial i mean they eat a lot of rodents and you know if if you've got a barn uh who doesn't want a big black rat snake in there keeping the rodent numbers down right but they do scare people you know Mm -hmm. um and a lot of it is you know folks aren't sure which ones are venomous there aren't any poisonous snakes Mm -hmm. you know poison is something that if you ingest it makes you sick snakes can the venomous ones they hurt you by injecting venom directly into you so um that's a 
the okay. just a semantics term, but just so people know, they're they're technically called venomous snakes, not poisonous snakes. And there's just a few venomous snakes in Oklahoma. There's a, a few types of rattlesnakes that mm -hmm. we have, depending on where you live in the state. Copperheads, and if you live in the east, especially southeast, you might have cottonmouth. Okay. Um, so there are a few of these venomous snakes. Um, generally, you know, I mean, I spend probably more time outside than most folks do, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I rarely encounter venomous snakes. And typically, when I do, they want nothing to do with me. So usually, right. people, the vast majority of people that are bitten, are messing with them. Okay. Like they're trying to pick them up. They're trying to kill them. They, um, you know, they're they're doing something to agitate the snake, and the snake feels like it needs to defend itself. They're not out there looking to bite you. Right. It's very costly to a snake to inject its venom. And um, so it doesn't want to do that unless it absolutely feels like it has to, to to protect itself. So snake bites are pretty rare Okay. Um, in Oklahoma or anywhere, really. And for the most part, I would just say, watch where you walk mm -hmm. and watch where you put your hands. Don't don't lift, you know, don't put your hand under debris or brush without looking under there to see what's there first and, and just Use your eyes before you put your hand or your foot somewhere, and that'll eliminate the vast majority of, of potential for, for um, getting bit. And know that the vast majority of snakes you encounter are completely harmless. Mm -hmm. you know, most, mostly you're seeing garter snakes and, and, and uh, earth snakes and, and Texas brown snakes and you know all these snakes that um, have tiny, tiny little teeth and no mm -hmm. venom. You know, even if they did bit you, it would give you a rash. Okay. Best. You know, it's pretty minor. Yeah. I think we had we had a snake in our backyard last year and I try to get my kids kind of used to it. Mm -hmm. You know, be be aware, but it's kind of cool, you yeah. know. And I think it was like a racer, mm -hmm. um, something along those lines. My husband yeah. looked it up. But we have racers. he was there like for months. We'd see him here and then we'd see him there. He's just kind of hiding yeah. in our backyard and we have flowers and garden type thing. But they're really kind of fascinating. They are, yeah. And, and they do eat a lot of rodents, you know, and I, right. I think that's something to keep in mind is there are benefits to having them. And they're, you know, um, some of them are really beautiful. Uh -huh. Yeah, this one is like strange. Some of them are colorful. Green color, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. So don't be aware, don't be afraid of snakes. Yeah. I don't know if that will deter anybody, but we're, we're trying. No, I, I get it. I mean, yeah. I, I, they I, startle me. They startle but you because it's, you, it's like, you know, you don't realize it's there and then you're about to step on it. And right. I think that's the thing. It just... It just takes people by surprise. And, yeah. And, and they don't know, well, what kind of snake is that? Is that mm -hmm. a dangerous one? Probably not. Yeah. But even if it is, unless you step on it, it's not going to come after yeah. you. They don't want to be seen. They're trying to hide and hoping you don't kill them. Mm -hmm. They just want the next mouse. Or... Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Okay. Let's wrap up this list with prairie dogs. Mm -hmm. Okay. You talked about you doing some research on them in Utah. Yep. They're a nuisance to farmers and ranchers in some ways, but they're actually a native to yeah. Oklahoma. Okay, they are. They're native, and and for some wildlife species, they're really important. You know, you can imagine by all the burrowing they do, right. they create a lot of cover for other animals that use those burrows. Um, they also provide a food source. Badgers and lots of raptors eat them. Snakes, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, especially large snakes like uh, gopher snakes. Okay, love eating prairie dogs. So. You know they are they're an important part of the ecosystem but i get it if you got 20 acres of them mm -hmm. and they're in your crop field yeah yeah that's that you know that that can be a problem so in crop situations they can they can be damaging they can definitely cause damage and if you have that situation 
I'd recommend you call USDA Wildlife Services. Okay. Somebody out there to give you technical advice. Okay. In a pasture situation, like a native pasture, we're talking native grasses, um, it's a little more complicated. I, the the note the thought is most people think when they look out there and they see that low cropped vegetation that well they're eating forage that otherwise be going to my cattle right now it is true from a quantity standpoint there's less biomass there's less quantity mm-hmm. on a prairie dog town but very often the quality is much higher because of that constant clipping interesting if you think about it you often will see livestock concentrated on prairie dog towns. Okay. Well, why are they out there? Well, there's often high quality forage, not a lot of it. Right. But the cattle are balancing quantity versus quality. So we actually, there are several studies that have looked at both bison and domestic livestock and seen a strong affinity that these animals have to grazing on or around prairie dog towns. Okay. And it has to do with forage quality. Okay. So it's not always a simple issue of, are those prairie dogs competing with my cattle? They can, but in some situations at certain prairie dog densities, they might actually be increasing forage quality enough that it compensates for that. Right. So uh, the cost of controlling prairie dogs, it's difficult to to capture that back in livestock gains on a native pasture. Mm-hmm. On a crop situation, that's a different story. Okay. But if you have prairie dogs on native rangeland, that's something to really think about and maybe talk to a resource professional because they may not be doing your livestock harm. They may actually be increasing uh, livestock gains. And, 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 you know, and it varies from property to property, mm-hmm. but but it's not, a, it's not a simple fix of eliminating the prairie dogs is going to increase my livestock gains. Even if it does, uh, you might not be able to pay for the cost of the prairie dog control. I think I read somewhere where if you try to get rid of some of them and maybe not all of them, they really do reproduce very quickly to... Um, sure. Yeah. Re- if they know. have more resources, yeah. they're going to produce more okay. pups, more young. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, it, it, takes, uh, it takes quite a bit of effort to reduce th- their numbers. You have vast areas of prairie dogs. Uh, there might be situations where control would be warranted, but a lot of properties... Uh, producers are undoubtedly spending more than they're gaining by trying to control them. I think they are interesting little animals. They're in these colonies and they have a complex social structure Mm -hmm. and these family units. And it is interesting uh, to watch their behavior and they have complicated communication systems. In fact, (laughs) this is pretty well documented that they they have different alarm calls for different types of predators. Okay. And when I was working on Utah prairie dogs, I I would witness this that, you know, constantly was hearing this background chatter that these prairie dogs had to alert each other that Mm -hmm. I was present. Right. And every now and then I would hear a different alarm call. And and after being there three years, I just got to where I'd recognize there's an eagle. Okay. You know, they had a different alarm call for an eagle versus a coyote versus me. Yeah. And so to be a rodent, they're they're actually pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. Their, Their vocabulary is it's remarkable. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, with all of these things, I'm hearing if we want to control them, think about the cost. Can you actually recoup the cost? And are they actually doing as much damage as you think they are? Yeah. So with all this, all of these wildlife that we are, you know, terming nuisance wildlife. I mean, it just, yeah, it, it takes some measurement. It takes some really knowledge to identify really, are they making an impact on, on what you're trying to grow or produce? That's right. And, you know, and 
I don't want to uh, imply that there aren't situations where control is not warranted. Absolutely. There are. And, uh, but some of that is a personal tolerance level and mm-hmm. people have different tolerance levels. But from an economic standpoint, I would just caution people to really think about the cost of the control before they start implementing it. Because if it's all about the economics, you may not be recouping that to any degree. So, you know, I just, I don't like people, I'm kind of um, pragmatic and I don't Mm -hmm. like people spending money needlessly and then being disappointed. Well, the cost of production in pretty much every agricultural thing is is very high right now. So let's, let's take some considerations to that. So this was fascinating. Thank you so much, Dr. Elmore. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this segment, listeners. Thanks for joining me, Dr. Elmore, and all the links we've talked about today. I hope we'll get a few more in there. Um, They'll be in the show notes. And thank you for joining us and have a wonderful week.